0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and welcome to Lockdown, Character Strengths and Silver Linings, your guide to applying positive psychology in seclusion. I'm joined again today by my dad, clinical psychologist, Chris Mackey. Dad, good to be joining you on the podcast again. Good to be with you again, Rowan. Now, dad, it's the last episode of the Lockdown podcast today, isn't it? But... Look, never fear, we're just having a name change, so we're not going anywhere, but we're going to be changing to Psych Spiels and Silver Linings, because we just think that fits the theme a little bit better for what we've been talking about, doesn't it? Yeah, look, I think it does because, well, we're emerging from lockdown,
1: which is a really encouraging situation. But uh, in a way, what we're talking about are themes that come up very often that are relevant to people with psychology in everyday life
0: and in a clinical practice. So yeah, we think of it as psych spiels. And I think one thing that's almost emerged from the podcast so far is that There's potentially times in positive psychology where we do need to defer to more general psychotherapy principles, don't we? So I think psych spiels and silver linings still gets across the idea that we're going to try and have an optimistic framework to it and that we try and get things across in a positive way, but at the same time, yeah, just slightly changing the name to hopefully be a bit more appropriate. Yes, because what we find is when
1: people seek help for psychological difficulties, then just positive psychology strategies like looking at character strengths or thinking of three blessings and things like that are not necessarily enough to help people deal with what I say is that where people are running up against the rocks, where people tend to run into the most difficulty is with things like anxiety, depression, trauma reactions, dissociation, and today we'll be talking about anger, like with that, these areas often people need traditional therapy techniques, which we commonly draw from the cognitive behavioural field, and people often find these techniques very helpful for dealing with a problem and then go on with positive psychology strategies at times at the tail end of therapy to bolster the positive well being.
0: So I pushed personally for Sykes' Bill's sport and silver linings, but that one didn't get up, unfortunately, so I might have to be a little bit more subtle in, in the ways that I uh, slip it in here and there, but uh, we've called today's episode Interpreting Anger, so Dad, why have we called today's episode Interpreting Anger? Okay, well, one of the first things is
1: why we're looking at anger is because it's a common issue that comes up with people. Apart from anxiety and depression, often anger comes up as a reason why particularly a number of men might seek therapy help, but it's often underemphasized and even under-recognised. So that, that's hence the theme. But in terms of interpreting anger, often we give anger a bad press. Often it's like a, a, a negative word. But as we'll talk about today, there are a number of positive functions of anger, a number of useful functions of anger. So it's partly looking to make sense of our anger and we'll talk about some of the benefits of interpreting or understanding our anger reactions and some of the positive functions that they could have but also interpreting our anger in recognising when it is becoming excessive or negative and then
0: looking to take a different perspective on it. Well, I think this is relevant on a couple of fronts at the moment, partly because, as sad as it sort of is, uh, with everything going on at the moment, domestic violence is going to be on the rise. So I think we want to get across that there's ways of obviously managing your anger... But then on the other hand, with circumstances going on in the world, we don't necessarily want to downplay the value of anger at times. We were talking a little bit before about Main Wyatt's speech on Q&A where he almost used his anger and potentially even aggression a little bit, but he used that as a tool to really get across his point and it was something that was so powerful and anger was a big part of that.
1: Yes, and in the context of what's happening around the world with Black Lives Matter, many people feel that not enough has been done to address inequality and disadvantage in a range of ways. And so what motivates people to do something about that, well, often it will be anger. And so I think what we're seeing more of is signs where people are validating the right to be angry about
0: certain things, and then it's all about how people channel it or express it or draw on it there was a quote that was put up on the destination happiness facebook page during the week which i think is quite poignant at the moment and i'll just read it briefly it's it's from maya angelou and it reads if you're not angry you're either a stone or you're too sick to be angry you should be angry but you must not be bitter bitterness is like cancer it eats upon the host it doesn't do anything to the object of its displeasure So use that anger. Yes, you write it, you paint it, you dance it, you march it, you vote it, you do everything about it, you talk it, you never stop talking it. So I think almost what we're trying to get across today is the idea that anger is not necessarily a bad thing, but the more that we can harness it and the more that we can use it as a tool to serve us rather than stand in the way of the goals that we want to achieve, I think the more that we're likely to achieve those outcomes.
1: Yes, and it reminds me of something I heard on the radio by an Indian academic. And she was describing how she tended to be quite passive and very polite in many aspects of her life. But in more recent years, she described how she'd learned to recognise that anger, when you experience anger, that can be a signal that a boundary has been crossed. I think that's a very elegant way of considering a positive function of anger. We'll talk about other positive functions later on, but partly that awareness, it helps us be aware of certain circumstances and that notion of alerting us to when a boundary has been crossed of some unfairness or some injustice or something that warrants some response. And there's a positive function we'll talk about more later, but by the same token, as you described We don't want to distract away from, and we'll be focusing on this episode on some of the problems of anger, such as not just the increased domestic violence that's been reported through the times of lockdown, but also it's been reported in the news lately that there's been an increase of aggressive behaviour towards animals. So the RSPCA has received about 16% more calls in relation to abusive behaviour towards animals. Now, that shows that often how people manage their anger or don't manage their anger so well can lead to some very significant difficulties, and we'll be
0: focusing on some of that today. Well, I wonder if part of the answer in all of this lies in the difference between anger and aggression. So... What is the difference between anger and aggression? Well, anger is an
1: emotion that comes up that often relates to frustration. And it's natural to feel frustrated in a range of situations um someone might cut you off in traffic. Someone might interfere with your rights in some way or act in an unjust way towards you or say some very unfair or misleading things about you to other people. There are things that can happen that could naturally lead you to feel angry. So angry is an emotion that goes with a level of arousal and following on from frustration commonly. But it tells us in some ways that we feel that our rights have been violated in some way but aggression involves a degree of force and so it can be yelling it could be hitting it could be throwing something it can be throwing a tantrum so aggression is
0: a kind of forceful expression of anger which is often excessive well i think if we go back to that maya angelou quote about bitterness she talks about bitterness being it eats upon the host it doesn't do anything to the object of its displeasure so I wonder if maybe aggression is some of that anger almost slipping out a little bit in the sense of maybe we're not controlling that anger as much as we probably could and so it's slipping out in a way that's a little bit less harnessed.
1: Yes, and in a way then that can cause hurt or harm to other people. So that's another aspect of aggression. It's forceful and it can cause hurt or harm. And following up on what you were saying there, that's where we sometimes have used the term anger management for therapy to help people manage or control their anger a little bit better and by control we don't mean a hundred percent controlling our feelings our reactions or whatever but managing it tempering it choosing how we respond being able to step back from a situation and exercise some thoughtful choice about how we respond then we can potentially harness
0: our anger to help motivate us towards constructive change well, anger is slightly different to a range of other issues that come from mental health in the sense that you don't necessarily diagnose someone with anger in the same way that you might say diagnose someone with problems with avoidance. It's more you you say have problems with anger, but we don't even necessarily have a term for someone who struggles with anger problems more than the relative. Yes, and I think that's where partly anger has been
1: underemphasized in the mental health area. There haven't really been good descriptions or terms for how people might deal with it. There is actually a diagnostic term for problems with anger that's called intermittent explosive disorder and that used to only refer to situations where people were physically aggressive but now it's a term that's also used for when people might be verbally aggressive like say quite frequently verbally aggressive say at least a couple of times a week for a period of a few months if that were to happen, then we could say that someone's showing that pattern of intermittent explosive disorder, which has been seen to apply to about 5% of the population at some point in life. So its lifetime prevalence is 5%. So that's actually quite common when you think about it, and that's part of the reason I think anger's is underemphasized because when people seek help for some kind of mental health problem, and they have that... Pattern of anger reactions, apparently, it's only about one in five people who seek some kind of mental health assistance who have some focus on anger
0: and their anger reactions as a part of their therapy. Yeah, well, that's really interesting because, like, that too, I've never actually heard of that term, intermittent explosive disorder. But I can imagine there's not too many people who come in and and might call up and sort of say, you know, I'm really struggling with my intermittent explosive disorder. Can you help me out with this? So I wonder if the relationship between anger and the problems people face is slightly different to other problems in the sense that it's not necessarily the thing that we immediately identify to be the issue. Because if you're the angry person, it's everything else that has the issue. There's other reasons to make you angry. So... How often is it that someone comes in almost, I suppose, recognising that this is the issue that they actually have?
1: Right. Now, look, that's an interesting point because people present for help to a psychology practice with anger problems in a different way to if they're presenting for help with anxiety or depression. I think like you're suggesting, when people come along with anxiety or depression, they know they have a difficulty and it's more like an internalised kind of problem. They feel that inside and they want help with that. With anger and excessive anger reactions, people often come along because someone else has got them to come along or some external circumstances led them to come along. For example, a partner is about to leave them unless they get help for their excessive anger reactions, or they've lost a couple of jobs or they realise that they're about to lose a job unless they do something to manage their anger. So sometimes people are sent to receive help, but the other way that people sometimes present for help is it was often when people in their late 20s or 30s, it was after they had about a decade of losing as a result of their anger, they finally twigged that they'd lost relationships, they'd lost jobs, they'd lost opportunities as a result of their excessive anger reactions that often were verbally forceful, certainly if they were physically aggressive, losing relationships – and often after about 10 years, and that was the motivation. And so sometimes people would come along in their early or mid-20s, and I'd ask them, oh, look, what led you to come along now? In a way, you're coming along ahead of time. Commonly, people need to go through about 10 years of losing jobs, relationships, and all the rest of it before the penny drops, that they need to do something about that
0: for their own well-being and future. So if someone is almost externalising things to the point where they think the reason that I'm angry is because other people around me or situations around me don't match up with the way that they should be, how do you, I suppose, convince someone that they actually have agency over the situation or how do you convince someone that potentially the negativity that inflames the situation that they feel could potentially be coming from them even though they see it as something outside themselves?
1: Yes, that's an important shift to occur early in therapy. The person recognises that it's not that everyone else has got these problems that they're causing for them, but they will take that sense of responsibility for themselves. There's two main ways that look to help people make that shift. The first thing is looking at the reasons why the person's come along, and it typically is either because they've been prodded to come along or influenced to come along, or they've twigged about that ongoing pattern. But still, with anger, people tend to have an externalised view of their problems. They tend to think, yeah, other people have acted in a different way from what they should or circumstances have turned out to be unfair. So to help the person have a more internal sense of agency or influence or own their difficulties, there are a couple of main things tend to emphasise or bring up. The first is I ask people about different situations they've been in the past in a way that they might reflect more on the losses they've had, loss of relationships, loss of jobs, loss of opportunities. But the other thing is tend to say to people early on, look, many people who come for help with anger, even if they've not come along so much at their own instigation, at someone else who has encouraged them to come along, tend to suggest to people, look, most people who have problems with excessive anger reactions feel somewhat afraid of their anger. And when you say that, you say, look, many people I've met are actually fearful of their anger reactions, and you see the person nods. At least 90% of the time when you say that, the person will nod. They know it. They know they're fearful of their anger reactions because... Almost by definition, when people are reacting very forcefully and aggressively in a way that hurts or harms others, then people are kind of out of control. Well, it's not a pleasant thing to be out of control. And unfortunately, one of the payoffs with aggressive behaviour can be that while someone's being aggressive, they can feel some sense of agency or control because they're acting forcefully in a situation. But as soon as they stop to reflect or see some of the consequences of how they've acted when they've been aggressive, pretty quickly people get a sense and a feeling they haven't been in control and people don't like that. And that then becomes a motivator for people to become more engaged
0: with change. That reminds me of something I mentioned on a previous podcast, actually. It was a chat with Mike Tyson and Sugar Ray Leonard and... Mike Tyson was in tears talking about the fact that he was scared of the person that he used to be. He'd almost become this kind of timid version of himself because the aggressive, I suppose, animal that lived inside him that allowed him to be, you know, the the beast that he was in the ring and all this sort of stuff. He was actually afraid of that person because he wasn't able to control it. And so potentially that alludes to some of the issues that Mike Tyson had throughout his life, that some of the controversies and scandals and everything that he was involved in, it really does point to, I suppose, a lack of controlled anger. And so one thing that I wonder about there is, you may have alluded to it a little bit, but why do some people get more angry than others? In the sense that, is it just that some people are more afraid of their anger reactions and that almost sort of inflames the situation, but... How can it be that some people are almost trespassed against equally or their boundaries are crossed equally, but some get more angry than others? It'll partly come back to worldview and the way that people
1: look at things. And certainly from a cognitive behavioural point of view, we look out for people's thinking that can influence excessive reactions. There are three common patterns of thinking that people show when they have excessive anger reactions. One is... Excessive expectations of others and also themselves. You mentioned earlier the word should. Our anger is commonly influenced by the word should. They shouldn't have done this and they did, or they should have done that and they didn't. So our expectations are violated, and some people might have quite rigid expectations or at times excessive expectations or think of the word should very often. Another attitude is a win-lose approach to conflict many people with excessive anger reactions think in a situation of conflict there's going to be a winner and a loser and i don't want to be the loser and that can motivate them to be very forceful and a third pattern of thinking is a need for revenge someone's done something wrong by me i'll need to get back at them to even the slate So they're the attitudinal things. But there also can be other things like a trauma history can be significant as well. And that would apply to a number of war veterans with more severe trauma reactions. With working with many war veterans, anger was one of the more prominent problems, excessive anger reactions in their families, for example. Uh, But also it can be modelling or observing other people's behaviour. People might have grown up in a home situation where for example their dad was often very verbally or physically aggressive and unfortunately that modelling behaviour can rub off to some degree in terms of a way of dealing with conflict. That can be another influence. Certainly there can be certain kind of cognitive or brain functioning aspects maybe in more rare situations that can influence things where people are less inhibited in some ways as well but i think um, very often it will come back to those attitudes that i mentioned earlier
0: well to just pick up on the first point that you raised there about that idea of the word should and i think that almost gives us a bit of an insight into when it's okay to be angry as well because you look at situations all around the world now There's many situations that shouldn't be the way that they are and so I think to look through that prism, it almost gives us a good sense of when anger is okay and when it's good to be angry. Yes, so if we look at the positive functions of anger, it is partly that awareness of
1: where there's been some boundary being crossed or some kind of violation of our rights or the rights of others that we empathise with or care about. So that's one aspect and in those situations then anger can be quite constructive in helping us be aware of our reactions and of a circumstance that we think is not right that brings it up to our attention. It can be very motivating. It can actually increase our energy and our motivation to do something about a situation to improve it when you think of it, a lot of very negative or unfair situations, the main way they likely would have been addressed ultimately is people recognising that they had a right to feel some level of frustration and anger in that situation and look to do something about it. Hence, that being part of what we see with the Black Lives Matter movement, or the Me Too
0: movement for that matter as well, where people have been mistreated. So, If anger can tell us when our sort of boundaries are being crossed and there are situations where it's legitimate to be angry, how do we know when it's starting to become a problem? How do we know when our anger reactions are too intense for a situation? Yeah, now that's the key point, isn't it? And generally how we view that is when our
1: reactions are too frequent, when they're too intense or they last too long. And then also if they lead to aggression, because aggression typically will lead to some kind of unwarranted hurt or harm to others. But too frequent, too intense, lasting too long. So for some people, they're losing their temper at a drop of a hat. And so that's also ultimately very frustrating to them as well as others because of this disruptive impact it has on their relationships. It also can be that when people feel angry, they feel so angry that they feel that they can't manage with that. It's hard to be effective, it's hard to speak, or otherwise they've acted out in some harmful way. And then if it lasts too long, well, we know that prolonged anger reactions can have a negative effect on people's heart functioning and physical health in different ways. It Actually, that's one example where our mind and body work together and it can affect things like blood pressure and heart health and our health in other ways, So that's another reason why it's important for people to find more of a balance, but particularly in their relationships
0: with other people. So in this situation, is it something where you almost advocate to people to not be angry Or is it more about, say, managing that anger? Because I think of, you know, let's take sort of the current kind of broad situation in terms of how, say, black people are treated at the moment. You don't necessarily want to get rid of that anger. There are situations where anger is not good and you might be too inflamed for a situation. But at the same time, how do we almost reduce the arousal level without letting go of the fundamental emotion that led to it?
1: Yes, and that's a key again, isn't it? How we do channel and manage and how we regulate our reactions is really a lot to do with it. That kind of self-regulation where we can draw on it to good effect. And one of the most important things with this is sometimes people are wary of seeking help for their anger or any kind of anger management assistance because they are afraid that they will lose something. They're fearful that it will be taken away from them, their sense of agency or being able to do something about a frustrating situation. They feel that they may be meant to end up being very passive and not being able to pursue their interests. But what we say then is, no, when we're looking at therapy, a lot of it is looking to add extra resources, extra ways of managing with their anger reactions so it can work out better. Rather than taking away any alternative They'll still be able to yell, they'll still be able to throw something, they'll still be able to be forceful, but if they also learn ways of asserting themselves, using words, if they find ways of influencing other people, or getting their point across, or being able to manage a situation effectively, without having to yell or be aggressive, then 99 times out of 100, people are going to choose not to be aggressive. Nothing will stop their capacity or Mike Tyson's capacity to punch someone in the face, but people aren't going to do that if they've got a whole lot of better ways of dealing with things. So what we're looking to do is to add different ways, add different resources, add different strategies for managing anger reactions, and then people can choose other more effective ways
0: for getting what they want whilst respecting other people's rights. I wonder if as well it can be handy to... To the best of your ability, locate the source of that anger for yourself as well, because as we spoke about, there's a number of different ways in which we can be angry, and not all of them are illegitimate. But at the same time, like I know times within myself when I've been quite angry about things and people sort of you know, almost kind of go, mate, cool down a little bit, you sort of think, like, I'm just angry at myself here. I'm, you know, it's, it's a completely almost internal situation. But I suppose the nature of anger is that it's externalized like that. And I remember one thing that a friend said to me once, which almost just completely kind of shattered sort of the illusion of anger for me in many ways. And we were sort of in a situation where I was quite frustrated by something that someone else had done. And it was going to cause me a bit of time, a bit of extra time. It was essentially no skin off my back, but I was quite frustrated And my mate just sort of said to me, oh, but that's just your ego, isn't it? Like, that's just your ego worried about that. And it just kind of shredded away any, I suppose, negativity I had towards the situation because to me, it just completely illuminated that the source of my anger was so internal. And the way that he put that, that's something that I quite often almost try and use that little kind of saying, like, you know, is it just your ego here sort of thing? And so often, it actually is. (laughs) And in recognizing that, You almost let something go because you don't have to be angry about something if it's just your ego. You can just go, all right, well, that's the way it is. I'll just do better next time. That's a great example. And in that example, I really like the way that you're getting across
1: the idea of stopping and stepping back and reflecting on things. And that's where we're using the term interpreting anger, aren't we? Where is it coming from? Stopping and step back. Now, anger will commonly follow on from some kind of frustration. And so that notion of frustration, it might be that a boundary has been crossed where someone has treated us unfairly. So we might step back and think, well, why do we think that's been unfair? Would other people think that was unfair as well? If the shoe was on the other foot, would the other person think that was maybe unfair or unjust? So it leads us to stop and think about, well, what has happened here in terms of justice or fairness or whether something has understandably led to some kind of frustration? Then, well, if it's a frustration, something happened, something broke, so we felt frustrated and a bit angry about that, but in a sense it can't be helped, well, we know where that's coming from or if we think that someone has done the wrong thing by us or someone close to us, then it might prompt us to action. But just like you said, with our anger reactions, if they do seem a bit too frequent, a bit too intense, lasting too long, then the chances are if we truly step back and honestly reflect with ourselves, we'll find something else is happening here. As you said, it might be ego. We might be getting into a win-lose situation with someone else unnecessarily or we might have unrealistic expectations of that person we might have a feeling like oh look you know i feel like getting back at them for doing the wrong thing by me or, or something on those lines and then we can stop and think that's like a bit excessive or just getting caught up in some kind of tit-for-tat situation or whatever i think if we stop and step back and reflect on our reactions then we're going to be in a much better position to consider is this balanced and in proportion for the situation? Is this one of those, say, positive functions of anger that can help us be aware and motivate us to do something to improve a situation? Or is it ego or expectations or something else which is getting in the way? I think what you got at with your example, there's a really helpful way of differentiating those
0: things. It's an interesting idea, that idea of stopping and stepping back. And look, as someone who's sort of got perspective as as one of my higher character strengths, it's something that uh, I recognise the value in this situation. But in saying that, when you're angry, I suppose the nature of anger is that it's such an intense emotion that it's so hard to do that at the time. And part of what anger does is it makes it harder to stop and step back from things for a little while. So... What are some ways of managing the emotional side of anger? How can we get our arousal down in order to be able to stop and step back? Right, good point. This is where we get down to the
1: tin tacks of strategies for dealing with anger. And one of the things is we need to be ready ahead of time. I think like you're saying, when we feel very angry, we can be getting caught up in that sort of fight-flight kind of reaction. You know, we're like a reptile. We're acting on that basic reptilian brain fight-flight. There can be a triggering of that in some situations. So especially where people have a repetitive difficulty with anger, or especially where people have repeated problems with anger, then it's knowing ahead of time to be wary of that reaction coming up quickly and then acting too impulsively. And so basically what that means is for people to tap into their cues of when they're getting angry at first, their physical sensations and cues. Is it a feeling of tightness in the jaw or starting to clench the fists or is it that one's breathing starts to go quicker or feeling something in your stomach or just is it some kind of negative thought popping into your mind? So picking up the early signs and signals of arousal and especially anger-related arousal. So we sometimes think of that as a temperature gauge, and we often ask people on a 0 to 10 scale, how angry do you feel right at the moment? And then to associate that with certain kind of feelings, tightness in the stomach, clenched fists, clenched jaw, something like that. So the person can calibrate their reactions a bit and pick up on it, and also pick up on the kind of settings be aware of the kind of settings or situations where they're more likely to feel angry in the first place. So by people being aware of what reactions might tend to come up and the settings that might trigger that, then looking to be ready ahead of time to slow down. Like you said, look to bring down your arousal level. Maybe take a few deep breaths. Pause. Take a few deep breaths. If anger's building up quickly, often it helps early on to... Leave a situation. You can always come back to it soon afterwards. And that's an early step of getting a little bit more control of people losing their temper, even to think to, look, go to another room or something for time out initially. But some kind of picking up arousal, being able to lower our tension. And then we'll talk more in the detail of this, but some kind of self talk. Having some kind of mantra or self talk really helps, such as the person being able to say to themselves, it's not worth it. Take it easy. Just breathe. And in a situation of trying to deal with conflict with someone, maybe thinking, What is it I want to say? And we can talk about some other techniques for dealing with conflict shortly that can help as well. But really, it's about picking up that arousal, having some way of taking a pause and stepping back, not just reacting, not just going into fight or flight, and then looking to temper our reaction. And then that tends to buy us a little bit of time, even a second or two, that then we can choose how we react after that. Actually, I might mention on that, when people followed through an anger management program for four months plus and made changes, the biggest change they had is most people after four months could say, okay, now, rather than reacting immediately, right on the spot, now I've got about one second to make a choice in how I respond. And nine times out of 10, I'm not going to act aggressively. You know, like I'm going to basically choose some other way because I don't like
0: that feeling of losing control and the loss that comes from it. Are those principles similar then if you're dealing with someone who is angry in the sense of if you can then build in that pause for them, if you can find ways of bringing their arousal down whilst not bringing yours up at the same time, how do we, I suppose, bring down someone else's arousal level? That's a very good point because partners in a
1: particular situation might look at how they respond here. And First of all, it really helps if people can keep their own arousal level down a bit and even look to disengage from the situation if possible, certainly any way of helping it not escalate. But generally, well, there are two main patterns that come up when people might act forcefully and aggressively. One is when someone feels under threat, It's like a fight or flight reaction under threat. Then if we can keep our own gestures fairly passive and keep ourselves calm whilst maybe getting across an assertive message like let's just leave it for the moment. This might not be the time to talk about this. I'll be happy to talk about it later on but let's just leave it for the moment. Something like that. But looking to calm the situation, passive gestures, maybe showing palms, something like that. But if someone's being very forceful, like being a bully, then often it takes some level of confrontation with that person. Now, it's picking the time, but if someone's repeatedly being a bully, say in a work situation, then it might call for a senior person or a number of people saying to that person, look, your behaviour is interfering with our teamwork. Or when you have done such and such, then that's led to this kind of problem. So sometimes people need some kind of... Well, actually, sometimes people need some kind of forceful confrontation if they're repeatedly being a bully. But in, in say, a family situation, one of the things that we would look to do is find a time where we could convey to that family member some of how it's having an impact on us, how we're feeling hurt, how it's interfering with the relationship, to help the person see that not just you as a partner losing out by that... Your relationship is losing out. They'll be losing out as well, looking for another way of dealing with things and communicating with each other, another way of dealing with conflict other than forceful or aggressive behaviour.
0: And so that might touch on it a little bit, but how do we express anger in a way that's healthy?
1: Well, look, I think that partly comes back to what we talked about in the third episode about dealing with conflict, quelling quarrels in quarantine, that episode. And so what we're often looking to do is to be able to express something about our views or wishes or interests, but consider other people's as well. That's the key kind of thing. It's looking for win-win situations, recognising that we can best influence other people with our ears. Consider what their rightful interests are as well. So part of that is looking at whether our styles of managing with conflict, whether we tend to be passive, aggressive or assertive. And passive is where we don't stand up for our own interests. But if we're passive for too long, or we keep on letting go of our interests or not standing up for ourselves, then we might just have a building resentment, maybe even bitterness, and that can even lead to more problems with anger down the track or anger internalised. Whereas if we tend to be aggressive in our ways of dealing with things, well, we might be going for what we want, but it interferes with the relationship and it might be unfair to others and their interests. In the long run, we're looking to develop some ways of being able to assert ourselves where we can express our own interests and our views but also show an interest in others. And that typically means learning I statements. I think, I feel, I would like, I would prefer it if you, I'd like to ask you if you'd consider... Putting things to another person in a way that you can express a view and show an interest in their kind of response, but with a win-win kind of approach. Because when it boils down to it, a lot of anger situations relate to ways of dealing with conflict, negotiating
0: a situation. One thing that that leads me to think about there is, why is it that men seem to have more issues with anger than women? Is it that men's tools for dealing with conflict potentially have more negative side effects? Well, there'll be a number of things that will come into that. There'll be partly biology. There'll be
1: partly socialisation. There'll be partly habits and community attitudes that will influence that. I think that generally, well, I suppose with testosterone, that's going to make a difference. Uh, Y chromosome will make some difference. I think that there might be an extra propensity towards forceful behaviour in males, partly from biological factors. But then I think a lot of it will be conditioning. So there'll be all sorts of cultural influences on women to not put themselves forward, to not even assert themselves in certain ways. And that's partly what we're seeing shifting from feminism from the 70s, for example, and then with the Me Too movement. It's looking to help counter some of that extra rigid conditioning. But for men, sometimes there would have been, dare I say, too much encouragement for forceful competition, And that might have come across in movies or jokes or whatever. But certainly in our socialisation, I think there would be a lot that would encourage more that outward expression in men. Also, when we talk about certain sports, we might use the term aggression in a positive sense. Well, if acting with great energy in a channeled way in a sporting contest helps teams win then there is something very worthwhile or effective in a way with that. But if we think of that kind of channeled energy as being a favourable thing and then jump to other situations and think, oh, it can be good to be aggressive and be forceful and look to dominate others, then outside of a sporting field, for example, that will not be healthy. Even sometimes in a competitive business situation, we'll see where some level of competition can be healthy in many areas of life, in many areas of schooling and work, in many areas of life. There will be elements of competition and learning to manage that by putting oneself forward can be a constructive thing. It's recognising where the limits are. And it's when people, say, cross that line or are excessively forceful or don't rightfully consider other people's interests, that's where you get major problems.
0: Well, it's actually one of the things that I really like about sport in the sense that you can learn so much about aggression from it. So you look at someone like Roger Federer, for example. His idea of aggression is going to be very different to, you know, Tom Hawkins bustling out, you know, 50 metres on the long lead sort of thing. But at the same time, I suppose the interplay between those two ideas can teach us a lot. So we look at Roger Federer, for example. He came up with someone who, I think he had behavioural problems, you know, sort of in his late teens. But he was really able to get that to a point where it was controlled and it was harnessed. And the thing about Federer is... You know, with a almost wave of the wand like sort of move of his tennis racket, he was able to turn a point from essentially not really being on his terms to smack backhand across court sort of thing. So he was able to really use aggression to his benefit. Like we spoke about Mike Tyson before. Mike Tyson speaks about he was really nervous before he got to the ring. And then as soon as sort of the music came on and he'd come out and he wouldn't, you know, have kind of all these big clothes on or anything. It'd just be literally him and his boxing shorts and his boxing gloves. And he would say, I was scared of me that day, basically. (laughs) It was sort of the degree to which his aggression was, I suppose, harnessed, but harnessed at a much higher arousal level than, say, for example, Roger Federer. And I think one of the things that sport can teach us and all the sort of different sports and their interplay with these ideas can teach us that at different times in life, it can call for different, I suppose, levels of aggression and anger, but the more it's controlled, the more it's able to be used as a tool for us. So we spoke earlier in the podcast about Main Wyatt and what he said on Q&A. Well, to me, that's an example of controlled aggression that really served his purpose and made it such a powerful statement. And I think that's one of the things that sport can teach us is the times when aggression can really work in our favour.
1: Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the wonderful thing about sport is it's got the rules attached to it. It's teaching us about limits. It's teaching us about limits of what we can do and what we can't do. Also with sports, you've got coaches and other support staff. They're mentors, And they're helping people channel their forceful behaviour. So that's one of the things about, say, seeing well, boys and girls playing competitive sport, it's partly learning to manage our competitive tendencies as well or aggressive tendencies. And this reminds me of what Red Simons, the radio commentator, uh, used to say about Olympic sports. He said he reckons there are three different types of sports. There's fighting, fleeing and flouncing. And I quite like that idea because you can actually put pretty much every sport in those characteristics, but fighting, fleeing, flouncing, they're going to relate to basic human behaviours of survival. Fight and flight, it's partly about survival. Flouncing, well, that's partly about being attractive and reproduction. Now, when it boils down to it, these primitive mechanisms are part of our nature. We don't have to deny our nature – it's how we manage or channel these kinds of impulses, if you like. And that's the thing I like about Roger Federer, as you mentioned as well. He's got his frontal lobes switched on. A lot about managing our anger is have our frontal lobes switched on. What is it that we're trying to achieve in this situation? How do we view this situation or interpret it? You know, Does that make sense? How might I express myself? Giving yourself pause, giving yourself that time to pause, reflect, managing your arousal. So when we deal with our anger, it's partly the relationship between our frontal lobes and our limbic system. If our frontal lobes are switched on, that's the part of us that plans, chooses and regulates and directs our behaviour. Our limbic system, the more basic animal fight and flight reaction. So basically, if we can switch ourselves on like our frontal lobes on and maybe sometimes doing that with calming self-talk or think of what we want to say or express assert ourselves in a certain way that's a way of channeling these primitive impulses if you like but in a healthy
0: way while still respecting others Well, despite never having heard the term flouncing before, (laughs) that's a new one. Uh, I'll have to look. What actually does flouncing mean? Oh, just uh, ballet stuff, you know, prettying about, you know, like flouncing. So sort of rhythmic gymnastics. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, that's, That's a really interesting thought. I'm going to have to put a bit more thought into that, I reckon. That's a really interesting thought. I wonder as well if all of this stuff in terms of balancing aggression does it relate to that idea of the animus and the anima that we talk about in philosophy? So I suppose you'd be able to speak to this more than I would, but broadly the animus in terms of masculine characteristics, which is some of this stuff that we've been talking about in terms of controlled aggression, all this sort of stuff, and then the anima, which is more about being in touch with your emotions and other people. So I wonder if where we can harness our anger best is recognising the interplay between the animus and the anima and recognising that when it goes too far in one direction, it's not beneficial for us either way.
1: Yes, that's partly a life issue and life quest to develop that balance of these different characteristics, the animus, the male spirit, the anima, the female spirit. And this partly comes from Carl Jung's use of these terms. And the notion is that early in adult life, For men in particular, the role and the cultural roles are often encouraging developing the animus, being task-oriented, achieving, things around status, being in the outside world, that kind of thing. Now, both men and women have the animus characteristics and the anima characteristics, but they're particularly encouraged in young men, early on, the animus, whereas the anima is around nurturing, it's around feelings It's around connection with other people. So often in women's socialisation, there's a lot of encouragement early in adult life to further develop those characteristics. But what happens around midlife is people tend to find some kind of disruption to that or some kind of disquiet, and then the challenge for men is often to develop more of their anima. So their awareness of their emotions, looking to connect with others, nurturing, and for women to develop more of their animus, being able to be more competitive, starting up their own business, different kind of projects, being out in the outside world further. Now, these are simplified ways of talking about it, but we're looking at the notion of balance. And so often when people are dealing with midlife issues around 40 years of age, give or take two or three years, part of what's going on is looking to rebalance some of these interests or tendencies or characteristics, getting more of a blend
0: of the male and female spirit in each of us. Well, as you're describing that there, I wonder if a few of, I suppose, the cultural issues that we've experienced in the West in, say, the last 50 to 100 years have potentially come from maybe an overdeveloped animus (laughs) and potentially some of the pushback from... People who you know are against the idea of feminism, all this sort of stuff, is that it's that potentially they wonder the degree to which that pushback against the animus is going too far, and so that's almost what they're reacting to. So I wonder, actually, it's very interesting as you were sort of describing that. I found it very interesting to almost think in terms of some sort of issues that we're facing at the moment, and I think that really helps to contextualize certainly some of the problems that we've had in the past. And potentially why the solution isn't as immediately obvious. Well, out of interest, what's one of those issues that you're thinking of that way? Well, like I look at the issue of, of, you know, this is something that we've spoken a little bit about on the podcast before, but, you know, it's something that's quite close to my heart. But, like, you look at male suicide, for example, and the ratio of men who commit suicide is way disproportionate and, you know, it's on the rise. And I wonder if... Part of the reason for that is the narrative that men have been given for so long in terms of what you were talking about before, that idea of developing the animals in early adult life. There's potentially still some remnants there of that in terms of what it is to be a man, that idea of kind of masculinity. And part of the thing that I wonder with certainly a number of cases of men who've committed suicide, it's almost like they wonder their place in the world. And... I wonder the degree to which this almost recognition that the animus has gone too far but not necessarily being able to articulate what a more appropriate balance of it is, I wonder if it just leads to confusion in particularly some young men about, I suppose, how they should really act in the world. And I think part of it is because there were so many issues with the animus. But I wonder the degree to which many issues in terms of i suppose the pushback and part of the reason that we haven't been able to i suppose collectively recognize the way forward is because for men completely dissolving the idea of the animus isn't necessarily something that's going to be beneficial either
1: yeah now when i think of male suicide i partly think of different ages and i think this relates to what you're saying but first of all i think for example An increased incidence in suicide proportionally with, for example, male school principals. Well, what's happening there? We're talking about very resourceful and capable people who've achieved a lot and obviously related to people to quite a good degree to get to that position that they have. What's going on there? Again, maybe that problem of having to achieve having to be strong within oneself not being able to be vulnerable not being able to maybe reach out to other people and look for that kind of support maybe so much animals maybe not so much the anima being able to express feelings, look for that nurturing connection with other people, that's part of the problem of things going haywire. If people are on about achievement or status or they're meant to be strong in a certain way or self-contained, that's part of the risk there. But I think with young men, there is some confusion around gender and one's identity and how one should act. I think sometimes it's as though the messages are, you shouldn't be competitive, you shouldn't be forceful in any way, you shouldn't be expressing this strongly or something along those lines. And I think that if we don't allow for the archetype in life, for example, of the warrior archetype, which many young men are going to have some, I think, strong drive to develop something of that warrior archetype, and, well, that might be channelled in competitive sport as a healthy way of managing with that, but how else are people meant to manage with that side of themselves? And this is where I think Jordan Peterson has been very popular as a psychologist commentator with young men and older men for that matter because I think he's arguing for healthy relationships in different ways, but he also has ways of describing let yourself develop that strong animals as well, to young men, he says, stand up with your shoulders back and straight. Stand up strong, that kind of idea. I think that's a helpful message to give people, as much as it's very good too for women to get messages and girls to get messages to be strong and assertive and be able to be competitive. We shouldn't be trying to stamp that out from young males because there's a lot that can be healthy from putting oneself forward forward sometimes acting strongly for a certain kind of interest, including healthy competition. Yes, I think sometimes the language goes too far in looking to stifle those natural
0: traits that people can have. And look, it's tough as well because, as you'd probably know more than me, in social science it's very tough to tell the full story with a one-variable analysis. So if you look at something like gender and all this sort of stuff – it can certainly allude to things, but it is very hard to tell the full story from that. But I personally think that if we look at you know, a solution to some of this stuff, we have to have, I suppose, both contexts in mind in terms of, for everyone, that balance of the animus and the anima is important. It's certainly not that you know one is better than the other. It's that balancing those and, and having those in harmony for each of us is the best way forward, it seems.
1: Yes, and so that's where we come back to it's also a balance of interests. It's healthy in life to be aware of our own interests and to pursue them. But similarly, to be able to collaborate with other people, recognise their interests and also support that. It's learning to negotiate. It's learning to collaborate. These are very healthy parts of life. But it's okay for us to have our own interests. And when we look at something like this too, and effectiveness, I'll just mention an anecdote of what used to come up in groups. Because years ago, I ran a number of groups for men who presented with anger problems. And one thing that struck me is when many of these people came into the group from very aggressive behaviour, And at first, in the group, the first few weeks, they'd show all this bravado or they might talk about fights they'd been in as though they're kind of proud of it in some way. But what happened when people persisted in these groups that went for about four months each week, after about five or six weeks, some of the bravado or this facade would drop away as people are acknowledging more about their losses and acknowledging more of their fear of their anger. And what would show is they'd be like vulnerable little boys. They'd be like five or six-year-olds. They'd be able to talk about their sadness. They'd be able to talk about their hurt or their frustration more. And that's where there was a balance coming in. They could acknowledge more the painful feelings, but they needed to deal with their painful feelings more directly and in a more healthy way acknowledging accepting them and then looking at how they'd respond rather than this false artificial bravado and when people were able to acknowledge and manage with those more vulnerable emotions then and looked at the ways that they might choose to act or respond and that might be with healthy problem solving improving their relationships and communication in different ways what would happen is then they would actually be able to be more assertive and more effective so part of it is redefining or reflecting on what we mean by strength we've talked about this before an emotional strength is allowing oneself to be vulnerable but still being able to stand up effectively for your interests whilst recognizing other people's it's around that kind of balance and that involves a combination of the animals and the anima being aware of the task or goals that we have but also being aware of relationships.
0: Well, Dad, whether it's the uh, the last episode of our first podcast or the first episode of our second podcast or the 11th episode, whatever it is, I've enjoyed it. And so thank you. It's been good to chat about some of this stuff as always. And as always, we've got all the resources up at www.chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. And we put each of the episode pages up too. So, for example, today's episode, Interpreting Anger, if you just go chrismackey.com.au forward slash interpreting hyphen anger, and that works for all of the episodes as well, uh, you can get all of the resources and even some snippets and stuff there as well. So please feel free to check those out. And, yeah, Dad, look forward to having a chat next week. Thanks very much, Rowan. Look forward to the next phase.